Good evening. It's a pleasure to meet you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Naman. I'm one of the pastors here, and a privilege of mine to be preaching God's Word today. If you would allow me to pray before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this tremendous gift that we have to sit at your feet, to hear your good words, uh, and to be reminded of, to be renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, even now as we come before you, would you open our hearts, would you help us to let go of the reservations and the distractions that we might have, and that we might come to seek you, to pursue you, and to be pursued by you, by the Holy Spirit of God. So, Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your presence, your spirit our guide, and your greater glory our supreme concern. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we are still going through our series on the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're almost to the end of it. We're wrapping it up here uh, as we find ourselves <clears throat> in the latter half of chapter 12, the second to last chapter of the book. So, if you would allow me to read our text for this evening, and as is the custom here, if you would respond with thanks. So God's word from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. I have been a fool. You forced me into it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obliged to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go. And he sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that have been practiced. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as we've been tracking with Paul in his letter to the Corinthian church, we've been getting a glimpse at a lot of really great theological concepts. Second Corinthians is a book chock-filled with theological nuggets, and you can spend weeks and years just delving into a lot of the theology that Paul is really engaging. 
But specifically in this part of the letter, it's not so much the theology of what Paul is trying to explicate, and it's not a treatise (coughs) of systematic theology, but we understand and we hear more of his tone. We hear more of of his mood and how he was feeling. There's a lot of emotional connection that Paul has with the church that we're beginning to see seep out as Paul is writing these words. Now, if you'll do for me, if you'll indulge me, have you ever been in a situation where you felt wronged? You felt wronged. Maybe it was a a coworker or a boss at work. Maybe it was a a complete stranger on the road driving here. Have you ever been in a situation where you were wronged constantly, maybe by that same person? And as you're thinking about that and you're sitting in it, maybe you've imagined, man, this is what I would say to them, or or, this is how I would kind of list out everything that they've done wrong to me so that they know just an ounce of the the pain or aggravation or annoyance that they have caused me. Now imagine that same person that you're thinking about that has wronged you multiple times, many many times is not just a coworker or a neighbor that you don't talk to or a stranger on the road, but it's your child. It's your family member. It's, it's a parent. It's someone very close to you. How then all of a sudden do those things that you're about to say, the ways that you're about to lash out at them, how does that posture change when that relational connection gets a little bit tighter? And this is sort of the, the dilemma that we see Paul in as he's writing this letter, is that he's been wronged numerous times by the Corinthian church, as we've read in this letter, as we read previously when we were going through 1 Corinthians. He's been wronged many, many times. <clears throat> but how does Paul respond? What is the, what is the posture and the tone <clears throat> of this portion of the letter, and those are the things that we'll investigate tonight, is A, is what is the, uh, the Corinthian rap sheet, as I like to say, or the list of wrongdoings? What have they done wrong? B, what is Paul's response to the Corinthian church? And lastly, what is the underlying assurance? <clears throat> the Corinthian wrongdoing, Paul's response, and the underlying assurance. <clears throat> He starts off this portion of the letter in a very strong, sarcastic tone. He says, I have been a fool. I've been a fool. Now, why does he say that? Paul says that is because in the context of where the Corinthian church has been led, they've been influenced by people as he's deeming as these super apostles, these apostles who are claiming that they have a stake in the truth, in the influence, in the patronage that they deserve, even from the Corinthian church, right? And so the church has been following these super apostles and based on their own charismatic (coughs) gifts in ways that they can lead other people. And now these apostles are then starting to discredit and mock and offend Paul and try to undo everything that he's already done in Corinth and especially at the church. So he's saying, I've been made a fool because Paul constantly in this letter and in the previous letter has found himself having to defend his ministry, having to defend his apostolic authority, having to defend what he's been called by God to do, almost to the point where he was accused of boasting, of, of being haughty and arrogant, all the qualities that these super apostles were doing. But he says he's been made a fool, not necessarily because of what he's done, but for you ought to have, for I had to have been commended by you. All of these hoops and jumps that Paul had to make did not have to be possible if the Corinthian church had his back. If they were to come alongside him and stand beside him and say, this is Paul, 
we can vouch for him. We understand who he is, who he's called to be, the authority that God has given him, and he's our guy. Please stop with the accusations and, and the smearing of his character, but that's not what the Corinthian church does. Paul has to constantly put himself in positions to boast about the gospel, but let alone boast and defend his ministry simply because this church that he raised from the ground, that he planted, that he discipled and nurtured, did not have his back. They were swayed by these apostles and their influences and what they're able to do in the society around them. Very simply put, for all intents and purposes of this portion of the letter, Paul is saying, you betrayed me. You were not there when I needed you to be. <clears throat> and Paul is saying, in light of the ministry that we have seen done amongst you, there was these signs of a true apostle of himself that he was doing, as Paul mentions in verse 12. He mentions signs and wonders, first of all, and then he mentions mighty works. Now, signs and wonders is sort of a, <clears throat> an allusion back towards Old Testament signs and wonders, and more specifically, what happened with Israel in the time of Egypt. So, when you hearken back to those Sunday school lessons of Israel being enslaved in Egypt with Pharaoh and all the signs, the ten plagues, these are the signs of wonders that Paul is talking about. Now, what does Paul mean when he brings up this connection? Is he saying that in your slavery to sin, to influence, to the fear of man, in your patterns of sin, I have freed you from those things. That in the ways that I have shown you the signs and wonders that we read about in the Old Testament prophets and the scrolls, I have freed you from that very slavery. That the ministry of Paul was actually freeing them from the tyranny and the patterns and the cycles of their own sin. And then he says, signs and wonders and the mighty works. Mighty works, if signs and wonders is the Old Testament equivalent, the mighty works are the things brought up in the New Testament that ever since the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost and the early church is being spread, <clears throat> there were mighty works being done by the actual genuine apostles, those who had firsthand eyewitness accounts to Jesus himself and had the power of the Holy Spirit to do miracles, to heal, to prophesy, to teach the mighty works of these apostles. So he's confirming his own apostolic authority and authenticity that had been happening in the Corinthian church. So he's taking both Old Testament and, for them, contemporary Holy Spirit ministry together to say, the ministry that I was doing for and with you is the genuine work of redemptive history. That all things that God has promised us since the history of our forefathers, even till now as we see the church rapidly exploding, all of these things were authenticating exactly who I was and what I was doing, and yet they decided to leave Paul out in the cold. The entirety of their scriptures, their theology, their law, the gospel of Jesus Christ was being rejected by the Corinthian church, and this is a part of the reason why Paul was led to write this letter, to visit the church for himself. And he did these signs and wonders, he did these mighty works, not as a way to bedazzle the church or to have them be infatuated with him and, and have the sense of oohs and ahs of look who Paul is and look who we're trying to follow, but he said he did it with the utmost patience. He performed that so that he can walk alongside them, so that they could taste and see and digest for themselves that what Paul was trying to teach them was in fact genuine, was in fact 
the word of God. And so further accusations are being thrown. Verse 13, for in what were you less favored? He's, he's bringing up a rhetorical question of an accusation that has already been made of him, is that Paul started to favor the Corinthian church less, allegedly. <clears throat> he's, he's quoting their own grievance uh, that they made. But Paul, we know, went to intentional great lengths not to burden the Corinthian church when this ministry started. We know that he did not ask them for money. As wealthy as the city and as the church was, he did not want to burden them. He, he was not favoring them any less. In fact, he was favoring them more by not burden, burdening them in that way. In an era and in a culture where these false prophets and <clears throat> influencers actually required and garnered patronage fees and money monetary contributions, Paul rejected that. Paul did not find himself in the same camp as these super apostles. So all of these <clears throat> accusations, all of these grievances being fed to the church is actually from the false apostles themselves. You can hear that the influence that they're having on the church, and you can actually maybe even bring yourself back and picture in your mind the fall narrative in Genesis 3, where the serpent is trying to lie to Adam and Eve. Did God really say that you surely would not die if you eat of the fruit. Did Paul really say that? Does he actually mean this when he says it, or is he just trying to build up himself when he's doing it? And he doesn't do it often, but this brings out a sense of sarcasm, a sense of satire for Paul. Forgive me this wrong. Forgive me for all of these burdens that I have caused you, when in fact he was trying to bring the genuine ministry and the gospel of the Holy Spirit to the church. Now, as you take a step back, as we read this today, as we consider this rap sheet, this wrongdoing, this list, whether mental or written down, of everything that the Corinthian church had done wrong, or even in the ways that we have been wronged, there is a natural response of how we should or how we ought to respond to people like this. I've gave everything of my life for you. I even made intentional steps to make things easier for you so that you can thrive and be in a better state. And here you are, not only doubting that or rejecting that, but here you are flat out opposing me and leaving me out in the cold. How would we expect Paul to respond? How would you respond if a group of people, a community like this, was flat out rejecting you? And so Paul's response is unlike anything that we should <clears throat> expect, that if we continue to read the passage in the middle paragraph there, Paul says, here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And we'll pause there just for a second to say that for Paul to come a third time is actually pretty remarkable. The first time was to establish the church. The second time, as we read earlier on in this letter, Paul was actually all but driven out of Corinth, driven out of the city, not because of all these naysayers and, and false prophets, but by the church itself. Paul was trying to bring about and call out their sin and what they were doing and trying to love them in a way to bring tough love to them. And what they, did, they decided to do is like, we can't take it. We can't take that kind of discipline that cuts that deep, so we want nothing to do with you. So they drove Paul out. If I were in that position, I would say, okay, 
I'm done. You don't want my help? I'm not going to give it to you. Apathy, carelessness, you do what you got to do. That is the natural human response when somebody rejects you, not just for the first time, not just the second time, but in that second time is driving you out of their own home. But Paul says, I'm willing to come a third time to come and make things right, to reconcile, to restore, to make sure that you still understand what I'm trying to teach you, who I'm trying to convey to you. So him coming a third time in just that one sentence is pretty remarkable. And then he continues to say, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. And he's alluding specifically specifically to the reality that as an apostle, as uh, an influencer, as a person of influence at that time, it would have been very natural and required for people to pay these influencers to continue to do the work that they do. Paul is saying, I'm not here for your money. I'm not even here for your vote of confidence. I'm not here for your possessions or resources or whatever it is, but I'm here for you, for you specifically, as I consider you and your name and your story. Paul planted this church he knew exactly who the people were. He knew, he knew who the leaders were. He knew their individual testimonies and stories and how they came to faith and the things that they were struggling with before coming to faith. And he says, I'm not here for anything that you might be able to offer me or want to offer me, but I'm here for you as a person. I'm here for your soul. And further on, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. After months and years of constant rejection and opposition and sin done committed against Paul himself, Paul is still able to take this posture as a spiritual father to the Corinthian church. That this posture is not one of rebuke, of, of challenging, of getting back at them, of harsh and strict discipline, but Paul sees them as his children. He likens this relationship that he has with the Corinthian church, not as a patron and an apostle, not as a candidate and a campaign supporter, but as a parent, a father to his child. Paul was their spiritual father. And so we begin to see why Paul is responding the way that he did to these repeated offenses. Time and time again, when the Corinthian church has failed him, we kind of see why Paul is able to come back to them and persevere in their relationship with them. He considers himself their spiritual father. Now, what does that mean for us as modern Christians as we're, as we're reading this passage even today? Is how do we pursue these types of parenting, discipling relationships, both in the context of our home and in the context of the church? How are we pursuing parenting relationships, both in the context of the home and in the church? Now, when we think about parenting relationship and we consider the one side of it, for those of us who are parents and this commandment of honor, honor your mother and father, for those of us who are parents, that's good news for us. Children are obligated to honor us, whatever that means, right? But as parents, we have been placed in a position with a calling to love and seek the well-being and thriving of our children. That when we we consider our kids, whether or not you're a parent or you wish to be, 
we have been placed and given a, a resource. We have been called to steward a life, a soul, for their well-being, for their thriving. And as we know how to do that best as followers of Christ is to lead that son or daughter to Christ. Submissions to that, to parenting figures, is not as though they are inferior as opposed to what society might say, but we have been called to love them well, to lead them to Christ, to love our children. So whether or not you are a biological parent, this may make a lot of sense as you think about your own children, but even for us who are not biological parents, I said both in the context of the home and in the church. So for for your specific context, what are ways in which you have been called to spiritually parent other people in our community? That when we read the Great Commission, and as we read the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that the Lord Jesus tells us, go and make disciples. That's the single common denominator for all of us as followers of Christ, not as something that is good for you or beneficial, but as a commandment of Jesus himself, is to go and make disciples disciples. How then are we as the body of Christ, as fellow brothers and sisters, engaged in these relationships where we are spiritually parenting other people? That we might put ourselves in positions and relationships where the prospect of return and reciprocity is very low. In fact, we might even expect to be wronged, to be doubted, to be, <clears throat> to be hated maybe, but how are we engaging in a relationship as a parent would with a child to love them? to preach them the gospel, to bring them the good news, to make disciples. And then for, for us who are in positions of having to honor our parents, whether biological or certainly in the church, being <clears throat> called and placed to honor somebody, to submit to authority, as I was saying earlier, is usually something that's seen as a position of weakness. Submission is weakness. If you're submitting to somebody, then, then you don't have freedom to do whatever you want or what you think is right. But for us, what we know submission to be in the context of the Bible, in the context of the gospel, is to know that we have a higher authority. We have a creator who, in his grace, created us in his image so that we might submit to him, so that this relationship only works and it, it only thrives because we submit to another authority. That we understand that there have been people placed in our individual lives, maybe our own biological parents, maybe spiritual parents here in the church. Now, it seems a little self-serving as the pastor to say that to, to people in their church, but people who have been placed in your life, who love you, who, who intentionally seek to disciple you, to mentor you, who have no business investing in your life, but want to see what's best for you, that there have been pe people placed in our lives because of what they understand the gospel to be and understand that we have been invited to be in this community. It's why <clears throat> the fifth membership vow is what it is. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church? Now, as the pastor overseeing the membership process, I get paused at that question a lot to say, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to submit to the discipline of the church? Does that mean I have to sit in front of the, the tribunal that is the session of your church and, and respond to every mistake that I've made and respond to all these different things? It's, no, it's simply the root word of discipline is, are you willing to submit yourself to being discipled to become more and more like Jesus? 
Are you willing to put yourself in a position to say, I want to grow and I need help in order to get there. I need help to become more and more like Jesus. So that when I say we need to pursue intentional discipling, parenting relationships, both in the context of the home and in the church, it's how are these people leading us to Christ? As parents, we have an obligation to do that for our children, to be the primary disciplers of our kids in our home. I have two kids, and they're almost seven and four now, and I'm transitioning out of the phase of just making sure they're fed and clothed and they're sent off to school, right? I'm now in the phase of getting the side eye, of of getting the doubt of, Daddy, you made this mistake last week. Are you sure you're right this time? And I'm starting to actually have to parent my children. So this passage makes me deathly afraid of feeling like I'm responsible for, for two souls. But we have been placed in positions, whether biologically, whether spiritually, to love, to disciple, to parent children as we see Paul parenting his children in the Corinthian church. Paul understood the burden of this responsibility of having to parent spiritual children, especially in Corinth, which is what allowed him to persevere through that long, long rap sheet, allowed him to persevere through the wrongs and the deep cuts and hurts that he experienced firsthand from the people that he considered his children. Corinth was, was way more than just this ministry project or a goal or a metric that he wanted to achieve or this notch on his resume. But Corinth for Paul was a group of people. It was individual people that he had seen and brought to faith. He knew their stories. He knew their tics and their quirks and what they were prone to fall to, and he still loved them anyway. He loved them with a love that we only experience in the gospel. So I invite us, I challenge us, what are those parenting relationships for us? Whether we have been called to disciple and parent others, or we are being called to submit to this spiritual parenting and discipling. And what is all of that parenting undergirded in, which is our last point, is what is this underlying assurance, excuse me, that Paul has that we've been called to do all of this? At the end of this passage, he, Paul lists this uh, list of vices of seemingly fruits of the evil one, things not to do, right? So, I fear perhaps that there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder, and I hope that you're not involved in impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. <clears throat> now, why does he list these things. It's not as though he's listing them as a textbook, don't do these things, but he's trying to convey a situation that he's about to dread. As he's coming back to Corinth, as he's understanding this backdrop of uh, non-repentant hearts that he's experienced in the Corinthian church, he's like, man, I hope this is not what I'm going to step into. Again, not as a way of laying down the law and being harsh and judgmental with the church, but The language, the words that he uses at the end of that is, I fear, not as I wish, that God might actually have to humble me, that I would mourn over the fact that I might have to discipline you, furthering Paul's heart to the Corinthian church. 
He doesn't take joy and delight in having to crack the whip with them, but he's saying, this is something I do not want to do, but I will do it because I love you. I fear, not as I wish, that God would humble me and mourn over it if I were to find these fruits of it. So then why does he do it? Verse 19, he says, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. What he's saying there is this boasting that he's, Paul's been moved to do, this defending that he's been doing, wasn't actually to build up his character and, and credibility for the church or even for the people outside the church. But Paul knew <clears throat> that his underlying assurance that the sole arbiter of, of his own soul was not people, but it was God himself. It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking And they speak in Christ, not as an audience of many, but as an audience of one. Paul understands who actually matters when it comes to giving Paul credibility. That the only assurance that Paul can derive is not by what other people say, okay, I can vouch for this guy or he's he's good for this, but he's understanding that his own foundation, his identity, his authority comes from God. And he does it by speaking in Christ, speaking the very message that Christ did in his ministry, that Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose again, and Christ will come again to restore all these things. So I urge you, even as you consider these discipling relationships of discipling others or being discipled, don't do it with a temptation of knowing, maybe this will make me a better person. Or maybe this will make the other person a better person. Or this is a good thing to do while those are good motives. But what are the contexts of these spiritual parenting relationships that we have been called to in order that we know that the only audience viewing it is God himself? That what does it look like for us to speak Christ to those in these relationships, even though we can see them fall and falter <clears throat> and make, mis- make, make mistakes constantly, even when we see ourselves falter and make mistakes constantly. How are we doing so, knowing a fear of God and not a fear of man? That knowing that God is our audience, that God is the one who loves us, who's the one who persevered first for us in Jesus. And how is that gospel message that Christ came, Christ died for our sins, Christ rose again, to give us ultimate restoration and hope. And Christ will come back to fulfill all of those things. How is that truth helping us to engage in this body, in the body of Christ, in the church, so that others might come to know that same truth? And that's as much as it was Paul's hope and prayer as he's closing out this letter to the second, to Corinthians. It's our hope as pastors, as elders, as spiritual fathers in this church to lead others to Christ in that same way, whether that's through VBS, whether that's through all the welcoming initiatives that we're thinking about for the fall, whether that's through the staff, these worship services, that we're not putting these things on as a show for you to be the audience, but knowing that God is our audience and that we have been moved and convicted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, 
thank you for the reminder that it, when we do come to worship, <clears throat> we do so not to put on a level of production or professionality or, or gifts or talents, but Father, we do so to bring what offering we have to bring to you. Lord, that our singing and that our humility, <clears throat> our faith, our conviction of our sin, confession of it, would be pleasing to you, that we are able to shed our temptations, that we are able to move forward uh, in repentance more and more towards a person and likeness of Jesus Christ and how that pleases you. So, Lord, help us to <coughs> dispel, as was preached this morning, not to try to accrue our own oil or, or accrue our own means of, of being prepared, but, Father, we would come and simply believe that we would investigate and reflect on what it means that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, would come, that He would die for us so that we might be given His righteousness and newness of life. So help us with joy and conviction pursue Christ and all that we do in the ways that we pursue relationships and the way that we parent others and certainly in the ways that we submit to authority. Lord, be with us. Give us that humility, that's, that fear and reverence uh, to love you and to love neighbor as you have loved us. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.